Um, what, I, what I love about theology is that all it is is helping you become who you are in Christ. Right? That, that's all theology is, is collecting theological dots and then connecting those theological dots to the everyday issues in the, in the trenches of life. So I'm, I'm really happy to, uh, to do this. And uh, here, here's how this is going to work. Um, uh, again, we will try to have questions at the end. We, I think we've been successful. Uh, I've saved enough time at the end for questions, so that's, that's been a, a, a real win. Again, my number, if you can read this, 435-1328. You can text in your questions. Because, um, again, as I always say, I'm not the clearest thinker on the fly, so I don't always think of the stuff in a very clear-headed way. I have to write it down and process. So uh, save up your questions, store those up, and we'll, we'll talk about those at the end, okay? All right, I think we are good. Oh, also uh, feel free, again, this is real casual, so feel free to get up anytime. There isn't like, you know, some provision again. You know, it isn't like the law of the Medes and the Persians that you can't get up and use the bathroom or get more food or anything. So, so please, you know, stand up and, and move around. And no dancing, though, so I don't, that, that, that's, not, that's not cool. But anyway, just feel free to get up and and move around, do what you got to do, okay? So I will pray, and then we'll dive in, all right? Oh, Lord, we pause to contemplate salvation tonight. And Lord, what we understand, oh, Lord, what we realize is that um, doing theology is not a mythical interlude in a week of reality, Lord, this is not hypothetical stuff that we, that we kind of contemplate and it tickles our intellectual fancies and, and, and yet then there's this whole other part of our life that's actual real life and the real world. Lord, what we see is that theology is for life. Re- theology, uh, doctrine is for transforming life. And, and Lord, what I want more for these people, for my sweet people more than anything else, Lord, is that they would see how the most lofty, exalted thoughts about you connect to the everyday issues in the trenches of real life, that, that, that because of what we hear tonight, that we would parent differently, that we would do marriage differently, that we would interact with coworkers differently, that we would talk to unbelievers differently, that we would drive in traffic differently, that we would brush our teeth differently, that we would, that we would think about uh, uh, how we clean our kitchens differently, just that just, or, or what we do when we clean our kitchens differently. Lord, what I'm asking is that, is that the pixels of our lives O Lord, would be shaded and colored by the profound truths in your word. So Lord, please enable me, uh, empower me to, uh, to teach and of course, to, in, in a way to, to preach and, and that we would think well, that we would do theology well as a church. So thank you for truth. Thank you for the power of doctrine and what it's designed to do. May we be a church that not only thinks theologically, but thinks theologically as a means to life transformation, always and only for the glory of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, this summer, as you know, we've began a five-part series on the doctrines of grace. You know that. That's why you're here. We've advertised it. Um, but, but again, uh, all the doctrines of grace are, are a summary way to describe God's sovereign grace and salvation. That's all we mean when we're talking about the doctrines of grace. In other words, all, all, all we're saying when we talk about the doctrines of grace are the, the great lengths to which God had to go to save you from destruction. 
Right? This is a, a summary way of what God has done in Christ to rescue you and draw you to himself and to, and to help you see him as the supreme treasure of the universe. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about the doctrines of grace. And the, the thing about these doctrines th- that I've said before is we, we can't view these, like these are kind of like a few cherry-picked doctrines that we're just going to kind of focus on. No, w- what this is, when we're talking about the doctrines of grace, th- this is the entire story of Christianity. Like, like we're, ultimately what we're talking about is the, is the 30,000 foot level and, and, and the plan of salvation and what God has done to draw sinners to himself through Christ. Um, and, and in talking about the doctrines of grace, we know that there are five of them, right? And traditionally, there are five of them. And, um, and again, where these uh, doctrines come from, I, I said this before, back in the 1600s, there were some, some pastors and, and theologians who, who did us a real solid. And what they did was they formed a condensed, packaged way to, to describe the glory of God in salvation, um, so the, these doctrines, they don't say everything there is to say about salvation, but what they are are the mountaintops of our salvation, as it were. And what these doctrines do, what I love about the doctrines of grace is that these five doctrines that we have been talking about and will talk about is that what these do is that these most conspicuously put God on display as the all-sufficient giver of grace And these doctrines put us in our rightful place as the needy beneficiaries of that grace. And that's good for us. That's healthy for us. And this is all review. This is not your notes yet. And and if there are five doctrines of grace, what are they? What are the doctrines of grace? It doesn't have to be in any order, just whatever comes to mind. What what are the doctrines of grace? Total depravity, right? Total depravity. I have written in all caps my whole life. Cursive, don't do it. All right? Uh, Next. What's another one? Unconditional election, right? Yeah. Unconditional election. Okay, good. Next. Particular atonement. Good. All right, and that'll be next time. All right, number four. Irresistible grace, right? That'll be a couple times from now. Irresistible. I love that one. Love them all. And then number five? Perseverance of the saints, saints, right? Good. Oh, I don't know. All right, so those those are the doctrines of grace. And, uh, and, and again, what we did last time, again, still review here. If we're going to talk about the doctrines of grace, let's, let, we need to pause and we need to identify and define what grace is. And, and grace, again, I'll, just, I'll go through this real fast. Grace, uh, we said last time, is God's pleasure to save sinners from what they most deserve and give them what they least deserve. That's grace. Grace is God's pleasure to save sinners from what they most deserve and give them what they least deserve. And and what do sinners least deserve? What was that? Grace. Grace. Yeah. 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 Mercy, right? 
eternal life. And, and ultimately, ultimately, you know, all those answers are true. And, and the, the ultimate answer to all that is, is God himself, that what sinners deserve the least is God himself. And so grace is God giving sinners what they least deserve, namely himself to be enjoyed forever and ever and ever. And so when we say sovereign grace, what we're saying is, is an act that only a sovereign God can accomplish. That, that's sovereign grace. So what we're saying is, when we talk about the doctrines of grace, we're simply drawing out the reality of salvation displayed throughout the Bible, that every single phase and stage and, and aspect of salvation is a divine and supernatural work that could only be performed by God. Everything from election to glorification ultimately is the work of God. Now, does that mean we're not involved? Of course not. Does that mean that we're, we're not responsible? Of course not. Does that mean that we don't do real things and make real choices? Of course not. No one believes that. It just means that God's power is ultimately decisive in every aspect of our salvation to the degree that nothing we ever do has any meritorious value. That's what we're saying. And last time we talked about unconditional election. We talked about unconditional election. And what the question we raised at the beginning was, okay, what if your salvation was part of a larger, sweeping, cosmic, global plan designed by God before the foundation of the world? Right? And, and that's really exciting because when you stand back and you look at the Bible as a whole, what you see is you have the Trinity in eternity past. By the way, this is still not in your notes. This is all review. Uh, you have the Trinity in eternity past. You have the Trinity in eternity future. And yet you have nations worshiping the Trinity. Well, that means that unfolding in the middle is this incredible, breathtaking plan that explains how those nations got there. And one of the things that explains how the nations got there is this thing called unconditional election. And, and what unconditional election means, uh, we said last time, is that it means that before time, God, in order to display the full extent of his glory, sovereignly and unconditionally singled out a particular number of souls from every nation and then gave them to his son for whom he would die and purchase with his blood. That's election. God chose them in eternity past. He gave them to his son and the son purchased them. And, and what I love about this doctrine is that what this doctrine does is give us the guarantee that God's supremacy remains, that it, it secures God's supremacy. In other words, election is the guarantee that God's plan cannot fail. Because the, what, when, it, when you really think about this, this is not some sort of, you know, uh, arbitrary sort of high level thing that doesn't really connect with real life. And we're talking about people here, real people with real souls who will really spend eternity somewhere. And, and the questions that weigh heavy on my heart are, how do we know that Muslims and Mormons and, and members of the homosexual community, how do we know that they can be saved? Right? How, do we, how do we know that some from every tribe and tongue and nation and people can be rescued by the gospel? How do we know for certain that hostile Jews and hardened family members that, that can finally be reached, that it's not too late? Unconditional election is the answer. It's the answer. 
So this is so important, so massive. And that's what we discussed a couple weeks ago, which brings us to tonight's topic, which is total depravity. Total depravity. And, and one of the things you have to understand about the Bible is that it has zero interest in flattering you or boosting your self-esteem or, or giving you some sort of false sense of security. The Bible has zero interest in that. Rather, God in his word lovingly speaks with brutal blood and guts honesty about our natural tragic condition in which we are born without Christ. Most of us, we, we don't view ourselves as too terribly bad. Right, we, you know, what, I mean, think about when you were a non-Christian and, or you know, whatever, and 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 you think, well, you know, I'm not Hitler, you know, I'm not Stalin, I'm not a, I'm not a serial killer, I'm not a terrorist, I'm, I'm not like those people, and you know, so I'm not too terribly bad. Well, the the Bible has another perspective. Th- th- those are not categories that that the Bible thinks about. See, the Bible wants to hit us in the head with a two by four of reality to help us see that the greatest terror in the world is not shooters in Las Vegas or Ohio or El Paso, right? The, 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 the monster is not out there somewhere in some dirty movie or, or, or a plasma screen. The monster is in you, and it's in me. Do you see? That's the issue. That's the issue. You see, the Word of God wants to stagger us with, with, with that. And, and if you come to grips with what the Bible says about the reality of the human heart apart from Christ, we'll see that not only how, how serious sin is, but we'll see our unbelievable, urgent, incredible need for sovereign grace. Um, and so, and, and, and really, you know, this, this might seem gloomy and depressing. Like, why, why are we talking about this? I mean, you, we, I, I showed up tonight. I could be home right now in a, in a nice air-conditioned house watching Netflix and watching this really great show that I'm not watching because I'm here standing, you know, sitting here listening to you. This, this just seems totally depressing. And, and yet, you need to know that it is healthy for us to talk about total depravity. It is theologically nutritious for the soul, especially for the 21st century soul that has been told for decades that we're really not all that bad. For, for decades that we've heard the, the self-esteem gospel. And, and it is theologically nutritious for the soul to, to, to hear that who we were and where we were headed if it had not been for God's intervening sovereign grace. That, that is good for us. It has all sorts of effects, all sorts of really, really good effects. So I really believe we get this doctrine under our belt, we will do marriage differently. We will parent children differently. We will shepherd grandchildren differently. We will do our work differently. We will drive in traffic differently. We will interact with unbelievers differently. We will think about lost people differently. We will pray for unbelievers differently. We will think about our own selves in relation to other people differently. We will do church differently. I mean, do you, do you see what I'm saying? This is good for the church to talk about this issue. This is so helpful. Thousands of of really, really good ripple effects come from being gripped by total depravity. So tonight we're going all the way down into the rabbit hole of the human heart, and there, there's no telling how far down the rabbit hole goes. We're going to 
plunge ourselves in a really godly way into the cesspool of the human heart. And I guarantee that, that what the Bible has to say, that once you see what the Bible has to say about our tragic condition apart from Christ, that, that your lives will never be the same again. So when we talk about, let's, let's, let's define terms here. When we talk about depravity, what do we, what do we mean? What does the word depravity mean? Feeling no shame. Okay, good. So, so Charles says, feeling no shame. Okay. What else? What is depravity? Helpless. What, helpless? Hopeless. Hopeless. Okay. Mm-hmm. Corrupt. Corrupt. Good. Sinful. Sinful. Unable to do good. Unable to do good. Yeah, excellent. Excellent. Wickedness, moral, spiritual destruction. And, and total, what we mean is everybody's infected by sin and everybody's infected all the way down. All right, so here, here's, my, here's my definition of, of total depravity. It's really long, really, really long. You know, the, there's no way you'll get it all. I think it's in your notes anyway, so you're, you're good. And, and, and even though total depravity is not a term that's explicitly used in the Bible, I think it's a really helpful summary way to describe all that the Bible says about our tragic condition apart from and without Christ. Here's my definition. Total depravity means that as a result of original sin, think Garden of Eden, As a result of original sin, every person, and by the way, I fought for every single word here. Every word word was fought for and and, and worked hard at. Okay, all right, I, I shouldn't have paused here. As a result of original sin, every person is born with every aspect of who they are completely polluted and ruined by sin to the degree that they are only controlled entirely by sin all the time and on their own, they are unwilling and unable to break free from sin's control. That's total depravity. As a result of original sin, every person born with every aspect of who they are completely polluted and ruined by sin to the degree that they are only controlled entirely by sin all the time and on their own, they are both unwilling and unable to break free from sin's control. Part two of the definition is, and unless sovereign grace intervenes and reverses their depravity through the miracle of regeneration, they will deservedly spend eternity in the lake of fire forever. That's, that's reality. So we're, we're dealing with real stuff here. So, and, and what I'm about to do is unfold that definition of a phrase at a time. That's what we're going to do in a little bit. But you get the impression that total depravity is absolute slavery. And it is. You get the impression that, it, it, that what we're saying is that people are born spiritually blind, damned, dead, and helpless. And they were. And we were. You get the impression that apart from sovereign grace, that we are only actually capable of sin, that we are never able not to sin. That is true. That is true of unbelievers. So we're not playing games when we talk about total depravity. We are talking about an absolute global epidemic, right? We're talking about every heart infected, every life affected, every family, every home, every neighborhood, every city, every state, every country, every continent, every hemisphere has been tragically poisoned by the radiation of sin. This is a really, really big deal. 
And, and I'm not the first person to, to come up with this. So people ha- have understood this and have seen, and, and the reason why I didn't, because it's in the Bible. But other pastors, other theologians have, have seen the exact same thing. In your notes, you, you see it. I've got a couple ancient confessions of faith as pastors, theologians have seen the same thing. These are incredible. And what I love about confessions is, it's not like these were a bunch of like kind of snooty intellectuals, you know, well, you know, look at us, we're, we're smart guys and we're going to go do our theology in our little towers. And, and it's like, th- these were pastors in churches with congregations who did biblical counseling and they wrote these things and they, they, they rehearsed them on Sunday mornings and they made their people memorize them. This is incredible stuff. So the French Confession of Faith, written by a couple of Calvin's buddies, 1559. This, this is incredible. We believe that man was created pure and perfect in the image of God and that by his own guilt fell from the grace which he received and is thus alienated from God, the fountain of justice and of all good, so that his nature is totally corrupt. And being blinded in mind and depraved in heart, he has lost all integrity and there is no good in him. Think Romans 7, I believe it's verse 24. And although he can still discern good and evil, we say, notwithstanding that the light he has becomes darkness when he seeks for God, so that he can in no wise approach God by his intelligence and reason. And although he has a will which incites him to do this or that, yet it is altogether captive to sin, so that he has no other liberty to do right than that which God gives him. We believe also that this evil is truly sin, sufficient for the condemnation of the whole human race, even of little children in the mother's womb, and that God considers it as such. Now, that last part, he's not saying that babies go to hell. What he's saying is, is that even from our mother's womb, we were hopelessly and completely polluted and infected with sin. We were born guilty even before we personally committed a sin. That's incredible. They, they rehearsed that in church. These people knew how to think about doctrine. The Canons of Dort, 1619. I love the Canons of Dort. It, this is so good. Look what it says. Man was originally formed after the image of God. That's great. We get that. His understanding was adorned with a true and saving knowledge of his creator and of spiritual things. His heart and his will were upright. All of his affections were pure and the whole man was holy. But revolting from God, he brought upon himself blindness of mind, horrible darkness, vanity, and perverseness of judgment. He became wicked, rebellious, obstinate in heart and will, and impure in his affections. Therefore, all men are conceived in sin and by nature children of wrath, incapable of saving good, prone to evil, dead in sin, in bondage thereto. And here it is, without the regenerating grace of the Holy Spirit, they are neither able nor willing to return to God to reform the depravity of their nature or to dispose themselves to reformation. That's incredible. That is so good. I love what Tony Ranke says. Total depravity is not just badness. It's blindness to beauty and deadness to joy. You see, our root problem, he says, is not just that we break God's commands. Our problem is that we have no interest in God. That's the issue. That's the issue. 
Ignoring divine beauty is the essence of total depravity. It's what what makes depravity so holistic. We cannot begin to imagine how any real sense of pleasure or joy can be found in our creator. To us sinners, God is only a boring obstacle to our joy. This dynamic is what makes our depravity total. And, and, what I love about that is you see this in your interactions with unbelievers, right? You talk with them and there's just this sense, they look at you and it's like, God, if he exists, is boring. You, you get up early on Sunday morning and you go sing songs with a bunch of weirdos and you, you listen to some guy talk for an hour yeah, okay. You know, I mean, they, 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 and so what we're seeing in those interactions, that's depravity. They, they can't even imagine the sense that, that there is fullness of joy and pleasures forever in God. So that's a, that's a definition of total depravity. And as I said, we're going to unpack that a phrase at a time and, and see what the Bible says about that. Here, but people object to total depravity. They'll, they'll hear that definition and they'll say, okay, come on, really, Jared? that we are only controlled entirely by sin all the time before we were a Christian? Come on, that's a bit extreme, don't you think? That's, that's, a, that's a bit over the top. I mean, sure, sure. You know, I do some sinful things, and, but there's lots of things that I could do but that I don't do that I don't even want to. So that clearly sets me apart from the Hitlers and Stalins and terrorists of the world. And, and so, so here's some responses to, to that objection. That's true. Total depravity doesn't mean that sinners always act as necessarily evil as they could. Right? That's true. There, there are a lot of people who would and could do a lot of wicked things if there weren't, if there weren't police officers in the world. Right? If there, if, there, if there weren't consequences, things would be different. Right? So that's true. It doesn't mean people always act necessarily as wicked as they could. Nor, nor does total depravity claim that unredeemed sinners are incapable of doing good and nice and even sacrificial works, right? Total depravity is not claiming that people are incapable of doing nice things for people. You see, how a person acts in a given circumstance is not the issue that total depravity is addressing. That's not the issue. Rather, what's being addressed by total depravity, get this, is the depth, the severity, and the extent of sin's corruption, regardless of whether or not a person acts on every impulse that comes into their heart. Right? That's what we're talking about. See, the claim of total depravity is that the human heart, before Christ, is so completely polluted and controlled by sin that even the best of their righteous works are so polluted with sin that even those works are worthy of wrath and judgment. That's what we're saying. That's what total depravity is saying. So, of course, of course, while, while an unbeliever may not carry out all the atrocities of a Hitler or a Stalin or, or, or someone like that, nevertheless, nevertheless, the desire for those things exists in seed form in every human heart. Make no mistake. So let's unpack the definition. So I've, I've got that long definition a couple pages back. What I want to do is I just want to unfold that a, a phrase at a time. And this brings us to the most important part of tonight's discussion because I want to, I want to show you where I got that definition. I didn't just come up with that and think, well, that seems pretty good. I, I, what I did is I looked all the way from Genesis to Revelation and, and I saw 
I gathered what the Bible has to say about our sinful condition apart from Christ. The definition came from that. So let's unfold that a phrase at a time. First, I said that total depravity is a result of original sin. It's a result of original sin. So you tell me, what is original sin? Does anyone know what that is? What do we mean when we talk about original sin? What's that? The sin in the garden, right? Absolutely. Yeah, that, that's exactly what we're referring to. We're, we're talking about the first sin committed by our first parents, Adam and Eve, which, which set off a trigger effect, a, a chain reaction that can and is felt even at this very moment, right? So original sin means that all of humanity has been caught in the blast radius of that original sin, that, that, that first sin. That's what we're saying. So that means that, that we are born with both the guilt and the corruption of sin already upon us even before we personally committed an act of actual sin ourselves. That's, that's crazy and that's scary. So the reality is we were all woven in our mother's womb with fallen, sin-polluted materials. And you can see this. You can see this in Romans 5. L- listen, to how, l- listen to how Paul connects it to the past, to, to the original sin in the garden. Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. By the transgression of the one, the many died. The judgment arose from the one transgression, resulting in condemnation. By the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one. Through the one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all, should be men there. Through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Do you see that? The the connection goes all the way back to Adam and the ripple effects of that of that, uh, that sin in the garden. So total depravity is a result from the original sin. That is obvious, I know. But second, we said that every person was born, was born, that's, that's my, the key word I want to focus on. Every person was born completely polluted and controlled by sin. See, the Bible is really clear that, that we didn't become sinful. We didn't become depraved. Like later on down the road, a couple years in life, after we learned kind of how to do some naughty things, we didn't become depraved. No, we emerged out of the womb depraved. This is, this is what, Paul, uh, what David means in Psalm 51.5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. And in sin, my mother conceived me. That doesn't mean that she had premarital sex and, and conceived him that way. What it means is, is that when he was conceived, it was riddled with and surrounded by an inseparable from sin's corruption. When he was conceived, it was, it was in the realm of sin. Psalm 58, verse 3 says, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They who speak lies go astray from birth. This is exactly what Solomon means. Proverbs twenty-two fifteen: Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Right? They don't become fools. They're, they're born that way. Right? 
And next we said that every aspect, every aspect of who we are has been polluted and mutilated by sin. So what that means is there is no part of us, there is no part of who we are as a human that is not completely infected and polluted by sin when we were born. There is nothing untouched. In fact, what I have here, I've got, uh, I'm calling it the anatomy of depravity. So I I looked at what what the Bible has to say all across the board at what does the Bible identify as the different things about us that we're polluted by sins. Here's an anatomy of depravity. First, the Bible says that our heart has been ravaged by sin. Our heart has been ravaged by sin. Now, obviously, that's a metaphorical term, right? Like when the Bible talks about your heart, how's your heart doing? Like what does the Bible mean by heart? What's the metaphor that's being used there? What's that? If your core is a person, who you are. Okay, good. Your, your core is a person. Yeah. Yeah, good. What were you going to say? Kind of your seat of emotions as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's, it's not just referring to the organ that pumps blood, right? I mean, it's, it's basically a summary way to describe all that you are with your thoughts and feelings and emotions and passions and longings and, and cravings. And yet the Bible says that your heart has been hopelessly corrupted. You were born hopelessly corrupted by sin. I love, in a weird way, Ecclesiastes 9.3. This is an evil that is, that is done under the sun, that there was one fate for all men. Furthermore, nobody says, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. Afterwards, they go to the dead. Most encouraging verse in the Bible right there. People are crazy, then they die. But he's right. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? It's a rhetorical question. Who can understand it? What's the answer? Nobody. Nobody can understand that thing in you, right? Matthew 15, Christ says that out of the heart proceed these evil things. Next, we see uh, next on the list of our, our anatomy that's, that, that's been affected by sin is our mind. Our mind has been warped by wickedness. Our minds are our God-given faculty by which we, we were given to, to savor the, the beauty of God. The mind is the God-given lens through which we interpret reality and make sense of the world. Sin has mutilated and distorted the, the interpretive lens of, of the mind. Look at Romans 128. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Romans 8, 7, because the mind set on the flesh, by the way, the phrase set on the flesh is a way to describe an unbeliever. The mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God for it does not subject itself to the law of God for it is not even able to do so. Ephesians 2, 3, that said that before Christ, we indulge the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Colossians 1, we were hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Do you see? Next on the list, our intellect. Our intellect has been mangled by iniquity, the, the actual functionality of the mind by which we draw conclusions and, and use logic and, and the thing that we were given to, to meditate and process and, and kind of make sense out of things, mutilated by sin. 
Ephesians 4, 17 and 18. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the ignorance of God, uh, from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their heart. Do, Do you see how he piles up the intellectual terms? Futility of mind, darkened in understanding, ignorance, right? Next on the list of anatomies is our, uh, our conscience. Our conscience has been distorted by transgressions, our conscience. And, and what is the conscience? By the way, it, it's not the voice of God, so, so let, we'll, we'll say that at the outset. But what is the conscience? We all have one. What is it? A sense of right and wrong. A sense of right and wrong, right? So it's kind of funny. It's kind of hard to pin down. Like, what exactly is this? But yeah, a sense of right and wrong. What else? Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Moral compass, right? And, and, and unbelievers have it, and it's kind of like, uh, I don't feel comfortable doing that. That's their, that's their conscience, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, so really what it is, it, it's our sense receptor of the soul to helps individual, that helps an individual decide if, if they should or should not do something. But, but the Bible makes clear that that, that God-given moral faculty embedded within us that helps us make decisions, uh, be it right or wrong, is, is, is mutilated. It's mangled. It, there's something wrong with it. Titus 1, 15 to 16 says that to the, to the unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience has been defiled. We were born with defiled consciences. Meaning what? Meaning that we call, that we, that we have a propensity, although our conscience is still functional. I, look at, I liken the unbelieving conscience to like a really, 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 really dull lawnmower blade. It, it kind of works. Like, like it, it, do, it, does, it does enough to kind of, you know, help us like, okay, I don't, I know I shouldn't do that, but, but it, it's dull. There, there, it, there's something not quite right about it, right? So we, what we see is that the conscience, there's, there's something that the conscience has been blunted and it's warped and mutilated by sin. And next we see our emotions, our desires, our passions and cravings have been bludgeoned by sin. We see Romans 1, 24 through 27, Paul uh, talks about that. Next, our, our motives have been polluted by perversity. Psalm, you know, so, so the, the hidden desires and cravings that kind of drive what we do are our motives polluted by sin. Psalm 36, 4 talks about the wicked. He plans wickedness on his bed. So, so David is saying, even before the wicked get out of bed, they have already planned the wickedness of their day. They're great planners. They're just, they plan depravity. He sets himself on a path that is not good. He does not despise evil. Proverbs 21.10, the soul of the wicked desires rasha, evil. His neighbor finds no favor in his eyes. Next on the list of our of our anatomy, our wills have been enslaved and twisted by the toxic waste of evil. Our wills, it, I mean, that, and, and our will is our volitional aspect of who we are. That's what, that what makes the decisions, that what's going to decide to do what we're going to do, right? 2 Timothy 2, 25 and 26. He says, he tells Timothy, hey, Timothy, you need to with gentleness correct those who are in opposition, 
If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, that they might come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So unbelievers have a will. It just happens to be that, that they are enslaved to the evil one. Wow. Next are desires, right? I mean, you, you could see, like, th- this, is, this is almost ad nauseum. Like, okay, we get it, Jared. Everything has been infected, right? But we, we need to feel this. We need to feel this, that, that before Christ, there was not one thing untouched and unmutilated by sin. We see several verses about our desires. I think, the, I think one of the most helpful ones, John 3.19. Christ says, this is the judgment, that light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light. Think about that. This, this is who we were before Christ saved us. This is what unbelievers are. They love the darkness rather than the light. Just, just think about that for a second. They love the darkness. They love it. They love it. They love the darkness. <laughs> Our desires are warped, and even our physical bodies, finally, our physical bodies are affected by sin. You know, that whole mentality of like, well, you know, I mean, there's our physical bodies, and then there's our souls, and the Bible really doesn't care about the physical bodies. That's from the philosopher Plato. Like, there is not a concept of that in the Bible. It's like, well, your physical bodies don't matter, so who cares? No, they are, they are inseparably integrated, right? We are, we are united together, and sin obviously affects our physical bodies, I think of, I think of uh, Proverbs 3, 7, and 8. It's not in your notes, but, but listen to what he says. Solomon says, fear the Lord. Uh, uh, what does he say? Hold on. Uh, fear, the, fear the Lord. Um, all right, sorry. Hold on. Hold on. I, I had it. I had it. Mind, you fail me again. Uh, oh, probably T. I don't, I don't know, man. You, you got me. Um, all right. Fear the Lord. And turn away from evil. Note this. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. <laughs> Fear the Lord. Turn away from evil. Why? Because it will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. You could spiritualize that and say, well, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a metaphorical way to describe you know, physical healing. I don't think so. I think he's talking about that even sin, even, even sin in our lives affects who we are, you know, physically, right? So every aspect of who we are has been mangled by sin. There is nothing left out. Okay, now returning back, stay with me. We're, we're returning back to the definition. I, we said that every aspect of every human being has been completely infected uh, by sin. And now here's the part. Every human being has been infected. With the exception of Christ, there has not been one single human being who has been, who, who was not born. Every, I'll put it this way, I don't need to use two negatives, all right? Every single person, with the exception of Christ, has been born totally depraved. Every single person without exception, right? So we all have that in common, right? That, you know, I, I think of Romans 3.23, the most obvious one. For all have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 1 Kings 8.46 There is no man who does not sin. 
Psalm 14, 3, talking about all people. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And then Romans 3, 10 through 18 is just devastating. There is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. Notice the anatomy that he gives. Their poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Oh, to give Romans 3, 10 through 18 to every lawmaker, put that text on their desk and say, okay, read that, then let's talk about legislation. Read that, and then let that shape, right? I'm not, I'm not saying that like Christians should like be in charge of legislation. I'm just saying unbelievers need to know these are their citizens, right? This is who we are. Everybody is a sinner. Next, we say that Every, all people have been completely infected and polluted with sin, completely as opposed to partially, right? No one's kind of affected by sin. Everybody, everybody totally born, totally depraved. And then in the definition, I said that because the total depravity means that unbelievers, that who we were was only controlled entirely by sin all the time. And people struggle with that. It's like, okay, come on, really? When I, was a, when I was an unbeliever, you're saying I was only controlled entirely by sin all the time? Don't you think that's a bit much? No, because that's what the Bible says. Roman, or, uh, Genesis 6, verse 5. Remember, just before the flood? Then Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Note this. And that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's, that was the state of humanity. And someone say, okay, that was before the flood. Things are different now. No, no, they're no different because after the flood, the same language is used to describe humanity. Genesis 8, 21, after the flood, uh, God says, I will never curse the ground on account of man for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. So he says the same thing after the flood. Nothing, nothing has changed. And on our own, the final part of the definition, on our own, it was impossible. We were unwilling and unable to break free from sin's control. See, in other words, every person is born a willing and helpless slave to sin, neither able nor willing to break free from sin's control. That's who we were. Before Christ saved us, we loved the slave master of our sin. We loved it. We loved it, and, and, we, and we, even if we wanted to, we couldn't break free from sin's control. That is a fact. We have to come to grips with that. And all these texts about, about being a slave, Christ says, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. Romans 8, 7, for the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. Notice the slavery language. He doesn't use the word slave, but you can see it. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. To be dead in trespasses and sins implies slavery. Titus 3, 3, for we were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our lives in malice, envy, hateful, hating one another. Okay, so that's, that's grim. 
And that's not particularly pleasant to hear, but oh, that is good for us in so many ways. It's not even perceptible to us how good that is to view the world through the lenses of total depravity. Now, the question is, uh, and, and I'll do this section and then I'll, I'll stop for a break, okay? So I'll do this part three on what total depravity does not mean, and we'll pause for a, a quick break. But I think in answering the question, okay, what does total depravity mean, we should pause and say, okay, what does it not mean? What does it not mean? Because, uh, again, you know, th- there's a, some questions that need to be asked. So, so I have five things that total depravity does not mean. Number one, total depravity does not mean that sinners are no longer in God's image. Total depravity does not mean that. It doesn't mean that people are no longer in God's image because there are texts that talk about people being in God's image after the fall. So, so that, that has not changed. Now, to be fair, the image of God in us is warped. It is mangled. It is mutilated. It is, it is shattered in, in, in some fashion. But we still, st- we still see vestiges of, of God's image displayed through unsaved human beings in, in all kinds of ways. So what would you think? In what ways do you see the image of God, you know, uh, crack and, and, and sort of shine forth in the lives of unbelievers? What do you see? What are, what are manifestations of the image of God, even in spiritually dead slaves to sin? What's that? Creativity. Creativity. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's exactly what that reveals. Now, what else? Conscious. Yeah, yeah. Right? I mean, there still is a conscience. There's something wrong with it, but, but you know, it's kind of still functional. Now, what else? Totally, yeah. Unbelievers can feel compassion, right? I mean, they're not, they're not robots. They're not unfeeling people. They're people too. And, and so they can have, you know, real feelings of compassion and, and pity. And, 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 you know, there is, there is an actual kind of, there is, a, there is a supernatural love that only Christians are capable of, but there's also a kind of love that being created in God's image that you can, that you can manifest, right? Anything else? It, revel, uh, manifestations of God's image, even from unbelievers, This is what makes it so difficult for so many people. Some of the kindest, gentlest, nicest, most compassionate, loving, giving people I have known, unbelievers. Yeah, right. You know? And yet, and yet. This is yeah. And, and it seems like, well, well, how does God feel about that, right? Like, I mean, how does he feel about it? Well, you know, what we know for sure is that, that none of those things merit at all his favor, but it does reflect, it does reflect, okay, in the image of God, we see it displayed, right? So the ability to love, show compassion, be merciful, be angry at injustice, draw conclusions and inferences and use logic, express joy and delight over beauty, create and invent things, have relationships with other people, uh, create moving music that, that moves the soul, that, that displays the image of God but they've hijacked it for their own private, self-glorifying kingdoms, right? Uh, Number two, 
Total depravity does not mean that people, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, but it does not mean that people always act on every sinful, sinful impulse or desire all the time. Clearly they don't. Right? It should be noted, it should be noted that when it comes to our fallen nature, we are as inherently evil as we could be. It's not that some people are less depraved. No, we are all totally depraved, and yet that does not mean that we always outwardly act as evil as we could. So again, every sin lurks in the human heart in seed form. It, it, it really does. That's why you have people, situations where it's like, I never, you know, you've seen that, you know, the, the people who end up being killers, like, I never saw that coming. That, well, he was so kind, and, and, and yet, that is the potential of the human heart. That is the potential. Uh, number three, total depravity does not mean that sinners are incapable of performing moral and even very sacrificial acts for the benefit of others, right? Being in the image of God, that's the deal breaker. That's the thing that enables this. Being in the image of God, even the most openly immoral people are capable in one sense of performing very moral acts and in one sense, very selfless and sacrificial acts that they are, they have that capacity because they are in God's image. Now, it has to be clear, made clear, and this is hard for people to swallow, but even these moral acts by unbelievers, they are still in one sense a part of their rebellion. Granted, they it was it was for the benefit of others, but but the reason for that is because even outwardly good acts come from hearts that do not flow from Christ exalting faith in Christ. Therefore, even those acts are sinful. Does that make sense? In one sense, great, commendable, and, and yet in another sense, it doesn't flow from a heart of faith in Christ. Number four, total depravity does not mean that sinners cannot be very devout or sincere or pious or virtuous or religious or very spiritually minded. It doesn't mean that they can't be that because they totally can. God made us to be worshipers. Agreed? He made us to worship, and, and everybody worships someone or something, and Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and Muslims and Buddhists are, are proof that people can be very, very pious and, and religious, and, and yet, and yet, listen to what Piper says, of course, totally depraved men can be very religious and very philanthropic. They can pray and give alms and fast, but their very religion is rebellion against the rights of the creator. Notice this. If it does not come from a childlike heart of trust in the free grace of God, religion is one of the chief ways that man conceals his unwillingness to forsake all self-reliance and bank all his hopes on the unmerited mercy of God. Well said. Finally, total depravity does not mean that sinners without Christ are incapable of incredible intellectual achievements and of improving the world at a practical level, right? Just because someone is totally depraved does not mean that they can't be brilliant and, and come up with inventions that change the world, right? Because you know people, you all know brilliant unbelievers, and, and they have made positive changes to the world in practical ways, right? We all, we all know those people. So, um, so but let me ask you, this is kind of a fun thing. It's a trick question. Can an unbeliever, can a non-Christian do math just as good as a Christian? 
Can a non-Christian do math just as good? I don't know what I said over here. What did I say over here? Non-Christian? Can a non-Christian do math just as well as a Christian? Yes or no? Yes. Yeah. The answer is yes and no. Of course, of course. As far as intellectual aptitude, absolutely. But no in the sense that the unbeliever, they don't see the deepest significance of the math that they're doing. They don't, they don't see how it reflects the order and the precision and the truth. I mean, the thing about math is that it is non-negotiable, right? It's non-negotiable. Two cannot be two and something else, right? I mean, it, it's, there, there's, there's no, I mean, and that is who God is. It is truth. And so unbelievers, they can do math just as good as anyone else or quantum mechanics or engineering, or, but they don't see the deepest significance. Why? Because they divorce that thing from the, they're missing the gravitational center that gives all things their deepest significance, namely the triune God of the universe. If we don't understand all things in relation to God, we don't truly understand its deepest significance. Does that make sense? Listen to what Piper says. It says, if the universe and everything in it exists by the design of an infinite personal God to make his manifold glory known and loved, and he did do that, then to treat any subject without reference to God's glory is not scholarship, it is insurrection. Meaning, any scholarly endeavor not pursued in relation to the glory of God is rebellion. And I think he's right. I think he's right. So there's a lot of things that total depravity does, does not mean. But there's a lot of things that it does mean. Okay, so uh, let's, take a, let's take a 10-ish minute break. Stand up, stretch your legs, grab some. There's some Cokes out there. Cokes and meatballs. Grab some meatballs. Um, okay, so 10 minutes, and then we will come back and we'll do the second half, okay? Second installment of total depravity begins what's that i know i know i've crushed your souls what's that oh did i say that oh yeah oh yeah thank you you gotta keep me on gotta keep me on track that's your job that's your ministry from now on keep me on keep, keep me on track Okay, so we have defined total depravity um, bit by bit, piece by piece, showing where that aspect, where that definition of depravity comes from, from the Bible. We have talked about what depravity does not mean. And I want to say a word in part four about why total depravity is so tragic. Um, It's easy to think of sin, you know, in terms of, well, you know, it's kind of breaking a few rules. Uh, it's it's kind of doing some naughty things. But but really, the, the issue that we have to come to grips with is the reason why total depravity is so serious is because sin itself is so serious. Like, if we can wrap our minds around what the essence of sin actually is, so many things will, will fall into place. Um, so, so what we have to understand is that what makes sin ugly, hear this very carefully, what, what makes sin ugly are not necessarily its manifestations or effects. It's not. What makes sin ultimately ugly is the root and essence of sin. 
And the root and essence of sin, get this now, is taking something that's not God and it's loving it and worshiping it and trying to be satisfied in it as if it were God. That's the real crime in the universe. That's the issue. I mean, you, you name the sin issue, you know, um, that what makes homosexuality horrifying is not necessarily its outward manifestations and effects. It's the root of the issue, which is the root of all sin, which is taking something that's not God and loving it and worshiping and try to be satisfied in it as if it were God. So what makes sin ugly is not its outward expressions, but the fact that the infinitely worthy God is traded for what is worthless. That's the issue. That's the issue. Again, the Joy Project, which was July's book of the month, he says, all that we call human history, money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery, is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. That's the issue. That's the issue. And that is the thing that should horrify us. We are horrified by the effects, by the external manifestations of sin. We're like, oh, oh, that's horrible. But the thing that should make us flinch and cringe and recoil and and sick in our souls is the root of that is that God has been traded. He has been exchanged. Isn't that what Paul's contention is in Romans 1? 23 through 25 says that humanity has exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the image of the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures, verse 25, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. That is the most heinous sin in Romans 1. That is the issue. That is the problem. We see the same thing in Jeremiah 2. God really gets to the heart of the issue. I mean, beneath Israel's immorality and their corruption and all of them, I mean, the whole, the whole long list of things that, that, that they were guilty of, God defines the issue here. So no, notice what he says. He uses law court language here. The Hebrew makes that clear, but he says, Therefore I will yet contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your sons' sons I will contend. For cross to the coastlands of Katim and see, and send to Kedar and observe closely and see if there has been such a thing as this. What he's saying is, go way out west, go way out east, and I want you to see if these pagan nations are doing something as horrifying as what's happening in Israel. And he says, has a nation changed gods when they were not gods? But my people have, notice, have changed their glory for that which does not profit. So he's saying pagan nations treat their false gods better than Israel treats the true God. That's what he's saying. And notice the response. Be appalled, O heavens. And shudder, be very desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. What have they done? One, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Two, to hew or dig for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's the issue right there. They have traded and exchanged God for what they think will satisfy 
And all it is is just drinking the sludge of mud. So that's, that's really the issue. That's why total depravity is so serious. It goes down all the way to the root of its godlessness, to its god-tradingness. And then uh, last section before I get to some implications. Uh, I want to look at the 12 symptoms. I know this is, a, this is a lot of material, and I don't know if I'll cover all these, but the, the 12 symptoms or signs or results of total depravity. In other words, when, when, you, when you look at what the Bible says and, and you look at, okay, what does the Bible identify as the signs and the, the symptoms and the results of what's wrong with us? What, what kind of terminology does the Bible use to describe what's wrong with us? And, and there's, there's, there's 12 things that I've identified. Number one is spiritual death. It is spiritual death. And let me ask you this. Why does the Bible use that metaphor, picture, that terminology of death? Spiritual death. If you're spiritually dead, what is the Bible saying about the condition of our souls without Christ? What's that? You're dead. You can't do anything. Yeah, absolutely. What else? Dead. I mean, it's got. It's not just a clever sort of play on words, right? I mean, it's indicating something about the soul. It must be born again. Yeah, if you're dead, you have to be made alive, right? There is a, there is a, an, an inability to respond as you should. There's, there's an inability to hear. There's an inability to process. There's an inability to make connections. There, there, there is a resistance. There, there is something irreversible. There is something irreparable, right? If we wheel a corpse in, how many, how many times will we have to stick the corpse with, it, with a needle before it wakes up? That's gross. Why would we do that anyway? But, but you see, that, that's exactly the point. It's exactly the point. Spiritual death. And what spiritual death is biblically, that's a graphic way to describe the helpless inability of sinners on their own without divine intervention to respond to the gospel in any other way but rejection. That's what the Bible says. We were unable to respond on our own without the miraculous intervention of God. Let's not kid ourselves to think that we had it within us. Like, oh yeah, I made all the connections myself. I got that. No, no, you were dead. And without the intervening grace of God, you would have only resisted because you were dead. We see, obviously, Ephesians 2.1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Chapter 2, verse 5, a few verses later. Even when you were dead, God made you alive. Colossians 2.13, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Symptom number two of what's wrong with us as sinners, slavery to sin. Again, this will overlap a little bit with the definition, but the Bible is really clear that we are born simultaneously helpless and willing slaves to sin, helpless and willing slaves to sin, literally held captive to the power of sin, and we could not have broken free from sin if we wanted to, and we did not want to. That's who we were. And, and, and I think the, and that's, why I, that's why I said at the beginning that that is so nutritious for us theologically to hear that because it so causes us to be grateful for God's intervening grace. Romans 6.17, but thanks be to God 
that though you were slaves of sin, you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Again, Titus 3.3 says we were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. Symptom number three, what's wrong with us when we were born is that we were also a slave to Satan. We were a slave to the evil one. And, and we, whether, whether we knew it or believed it or liked it or not, that was true. That's who we were. I mean, it's really cool that people on their own, without the sovereign intervention of Christ, are children of the evil one. I mean, that's horrifying. That's horrifying language. Deceived by the evil one, blinded by the evil one. And, and 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says that he was the God that we unknowingly served and followed and worshipped. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. You see, 2 Timothy 2.25 and 26, again, we read this earlier, Paul says, Timothy, with gentleness, correct those who are in opposition. Notice his language. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, meaning repentance is a gift, it's in fact the word he uses, leading to the knowledge of the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil having, having been held captive by him to do his will. That's who we were. I mean, that's unbelievable, isn't it? To, to contemplate, apart from Christ, I was a slave to the evil one. It, it boggles the mind. Number four, a symptom of, of what was wrong with us, a symptom of our depravity was our inability to believe in God or Christ in a saving way. Now, I don't mean that non-Christians have a legitimate excuse for not believing in God because Romans 1, 28 through, uh, 20 through, uh, 18 through 20 says that all people do believe in God. There's no excuse not to believe. But people on their own are unable to believe in God in a saving way. They can affirm his, exi his existence intellectually, but on their own, without the regenerating work of the Spirit, they cannot believe in God in a saving way. Saving faith is impossible without the miracle of regeneration. James 2.19, you believe that God is one? So what? Big deal. Demons believe, and they shudder. They shudder. Number five, symptom, inability to seek God. The inability to seek God, Romans 3.11, there is none who understands, there is none who seeks God. I mean, sure, maybe some people talk about their, their oh, I'm just seeking after God, I'm, you know, and, and, but, but people in their natural state don't seek God for who he is. They seek them for their own ends and they are not seeking the true God. People on their own do not seek God. Symptom number six, the inability to please God. And, and this is, this is, Tragic. This is terrifying too. Nothing an unsaved sinner could ever, ever do would in any way please God or merit any favor with him at all. God will not be blackmailed by the works, by the righteous works of men because those very acts flow from an unregenerate heart that despise him. Notice what Romans 8 well, we read it this morning, Isaiah 64, 6. For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a what? Filthy garment. Romans 8, 5 through 9. Notice very carefully. Again, in, in Romans 8, when Paul talks about those in the flesh, 
he's talking about unbelievers. When he talks about those in the spirit, he's talking about believers. Those who are, for those who are according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those according to the spirit, the things of the spirit, the mind for the mind set on the flesh is death. But the mind set on the spirit is life and peace because the mind set, notice this, the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God for it does not subject itself to the law of God. Notice, for it is not even able to do so. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Wow. Number seven, inability to be good or or to do righteous things. You see Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who does good, not even one. Number eight, the inability to believe or understand the gospel in a saving way. Did you know that unbelievers, that, that when we were spiritually dead, we could not understand the gospel on our own? How do I know that? Is there biblical proof for that? Yes, there is. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 25, notice. For the word of the cross is what? Really good news to the perishing? <laughs> Foolishness to the perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Notice 1 Corinthians 2.14, but a natural man, a natural man, unsaved man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why? For they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Number nine, inability, unwillingness to change and make things right with God. I'll skip that one. It seems obvious. Number 10, we see from the Bible that there is another symptom is ever-increasing corruption. Total depravity doesn't always reveal itself at once. 2 Timothy 3.13 says that evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Number 11, the Bible says that unbelievers are only able to sin. That everything they do, even the most righteous of their deeds, are so infected and polluted by sin that even the best of their righteous works are worthy of wrath and judgment. And then final sign, final symptom, is that depravity results in eternal punishment. And I've got several texts there for that. Okay, conclusion, and then a few implications and questions from you. Um, You know, we, we have to come to grips with the fact that we are as bad as we could be. We were born as bad as we could be. Now, to be clear, I don't know if I've made this as clear as I, I should have. When you got saved, you, you were no longer totally depraved. Right? That, that changed. You, were still, you, are still, you still have inclinations, unfortunate though they may be, to do sinful things, but, but total depravity because you're, not, you're no longer spiritually dead, right? So things have radically changed if you are in Christ. But we were born as bad as we could be. We were all woven in the wombs of our mothers with fallen, sin-polluted materials. We were born dead. A stillborn spiritual corpse. We grew up dead like zombies who didn't even know that they were dead. And when we die, if we die when we're dead, then we go to the second death, which does not end. And yet, all is not lost, is it? All is not lost because even back in the third chapter of the Bible, the, the, the very same chapter in which, in which our first parents unleashed the virus of sin into the world, God whispered of a Savior, didn't he? 
He, he, he whispered of a redeemer, of a deliverer, of a Messiah who would come and one day crush the serpent's head and reverse the effects of sin and make things, all things be the way they ought to be. And, and Jesus Christ is the great serpent crusher who at the cross dealt the devil a death blow. And when he returns to establish his kingdom, he will land the final punch. And in his kingdom, we see it in Isaiah 11. We see it in other passages. He will literally, his presence on the earth will reverse the effects of sin. And he will make all things be the way they ought to be. I think it's really interesting is that for all eternity, we will see the scars on the Messiah, won't we? There's, there'll always be that, that, that remnant of, of, of where we came from. And what's the song that we'll sing forever? Worthy is the lamb who was slain. By the way, I don't think in heaven all we will do is sing. So I don't want you to, I don't want to perpetuate that, that, that vision of, uh, false vision of heaven. But when we do sing, one of the songs on the playlist will be Worthy is the Lamb. And oh, what a chorus that will be. All right, here, here's some implications. I just want to do a, a few here. Um, you can look at the rest on your own. I've got 12. I kind of overdid it. Um, I don't know how to, I only know how to overdo it. Um, I, I really believe that, number one, the, the truth about total depravity, and these will go sort of in increasing order of importance, kind of, sort of. Uh, number one, the, the truth about total depravity, I really think, makes all the other doctrines of grace fall into place. I, I really believe if you get this under your belt, if you hold out some remnant that there's some part of man that's good or there's something about us that, that's worthy of merit, you will struggle with hell. You will struggle with regeneration before faith. I think if you get this doctrine, you will not struggle with, with the fact that regeneration has to happen first in order to allow you to believe. Now, that seems kind of tricky, and we'll get to that when we talk about irresistible grace. But you get this doctrine right, and so many things fall into place. Number two, the truth about total depravity causes us to be staggered by the supremacy of Christ and everything that he did to save hell-deserving sinners, right? We, we get this doctrine and we will get grace. Literally, total depravity is the black velvet tapestry that puts the, the diamonds of sovereign grace on, on gleaming display. Number three, the truth about total depravity radically changes the way we parent and shepherd our children. It, it really does. It radically changes the way we do parenting. It should. Because what it does is it reminds us, it gives us, it helps us see that our kids emerged from the womb, not merely broken and damaged, but, but spiritually dead. And that doesn't mean you look at them as objects or objectify them or that it, I, I, and I don't think it would cause less compassion. I think it should cause more compassion because that, that's who we were. And, and what it does is it help us, helps us not raise little Pharisees who just kind of keep the rules and, and, and we don't parent them in such a way that, okay, we're just going to externally, you look good for everyone and we're going to project this image of our family. Total depravity helps you not parent that way. What it does is it, is it helps us parent in such a way that, that we help them see that they are great sinners who, who need a great Savior. Sarah and I are not the paradigm of parenting. But we even see that, that um, giving consequences, dishing out judgment, um, spanking, that, uh, that that's a gospel transaction. It never in anger, never should be in anger, nev never out of some personal vendetta, it's a gospel transaction. Maisie, do you remember why we spank? 
Yeah. Why do, we, why do we do this? Why do we give consequences? Because sin is serious, right? And, and, and this reminds you that you need what? A new heart, right? And who can give you a new heart? Christ can, exactly. And what did he do for sinners? He died on the cross, exactly. Are you a sinner? Yes. Do you need a new heart? Yes. Okay, that's why we do this. And I'll I'll say stuff like this. The pain on your bottom reminds you of the sting of sin in your soul. And you you just make the connection for them. This helps us parent. Helps us pray for our kids too. And I've got some verses there, things you could pray. Number four, the truth about depravity helps us see that sin is not just badness or doing naughty things, but deadness to joy and blindness to beauty. I said that earlier. Um, I'll skip five. Um, uh, Number six, I talk about that total depravity is one of the greatest foundations for authentic humility. Um, Number seven, the truth about depravity helps us look upon unsaved sinners with pity and compassion and and to urgently give them what they need the most, namely Christ through the gospel. Skip down to number number nine. I mean, again, not that the others aren't important. The truth about depravity transforms the way we, we pray. It should transform the way we pray for lost people. I pray these things for unbelievers every single day. I pray Deuteronomy 30, verse 6 for them. Lord, circumcise my dad's heart so that he will love you with all of his heart and all his soul. That's a Bible verse. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Circumcise his heart. Ezekiel 36, 27. I I remember always praying this for Farouk, one of my Muslim friends back in Spokane. Lord, I pray for Farouk that you would take out of him the heart of stone and give him a heart of flesh and put your spirit within him and cause him to walk in your statutes and he would be careful to observe your ordinances. That's in the Bible. Acts 16, 14, I pray this for my kids all the time. Lord, open their heart so that they will respond just like Lydia did to the things spoken in your word. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, open their eyes to see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. You just, you just pray these things for unbelievers. It radically shapes the way you pray. Um, number 11, I guess I'll close... Uh, now I'll do 11 and 12. I, I, the truth about depravity really transforms the way, at least it should transform the way we share our testimony with unbelievers. Most Christians really fumble the ball when it comes to sharing their testimony. You have this unbelievable opportunity, not pointing the finger at you, just, we have this unbelievable opportunity to share the, share the gospel through our testimony, and we fumble it. And one of the ways that Christians do it are, you know, ah, you know, ah, how I got saved isn't really very interesting. I was kind of young and, you know, and we think, we think that because we didn't hit rock bottom and we didn't wake up in an alley in Burbank with a needle hanging about our arm that we don't have a good testimony. And yet it's not your personal story that makes it great. It's the miracle of God awakening you from the dead that makes it a great story. You're not interesting. I'm not interesting. But the God who intervened in our lives, even if it was at four years old, that's insanely interesting. Because what you can say, if you got saved at a young age, it's like, you know what? I didn't have a lot of time on the earth to, 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 to really manifest my wickedness, but what I do know biblically is that I was spiritually dead. Even as a four-year-old, and I was a slave to sin, and I was a slave to Satan, and, and I don't remember what that was like, but, but I, remember, I remember that, that you know, I know biblically that my eyes were blinded by the evil one and I was a great sinner who needed a great savior. Now, me personally, I got saved at 19, so I had a lot, I had a lot of history of you know, doing sinful things to look back and go, wow, yeah, I, I, I did not need to be convinced of my depravity. But, uh, and, and here's another thing about you, you, 
our testimonies. Uh, don't use I, me language. Use universals. Don't say, well, you know, I mean, I was sinful. Say, no, I found out that all people are sinners and have fallen short of the glory of God. Don't say, you know, my decision for me was that I wanted to believe in Jesus. You need to say, I discovered, someone shared with me that we are all sinners and that the only hope for all mankind was Jesus Christ who came to the planet to save sinners like you and me. And you use your testimony as a way to turn the tables and point it at them. Let's do testimonies really, really well, shall we? Integrating. It's not about the story of your life, important though that may be. It's integrating the only message that will actually save them in and through your story. Number 12, the truth about total depravity helps us understand and embrace the severity and justice of hell. If we really feel the shock and horror of what sin is, we will easily embrace shocking and horrifying though eternal hell is. And we were this close. I mean, do you, do you feel that we were this close? We should be there right now. And we're not there. We're here with meatballs. It's incredible, isn't it? And that, that sense, that, that, that sobriety uh, about hell, that, that, is, that is so good for us. And, and the truth about total depravity helps us embrace the justice and severity of hell. Okay, so that doesn't leave us much time for, for questions. I'll do my best. Oh, snap. Holy cow. Girl, what did you send me? Okay. <laughs> okay, all right. Uh, all right, so I will just take these the order in which I have them. I'll, I will do my best. Okay. Uh, at the end of time, uh, when God lays the final blow and crushes the evil one, nice terminology, and restores his kingdom like that, uh, where does that leave non-believers? Okay. Right, let me, let me, uh, so when restores, are you talking about when Christ returns at the kingdom? Okay. So when Christ returns to establish his kingdom, uh, you know, in Matthew 24, he'll show up. To, so he'll literally show up to the planet. Revelation 19 uh, says that he shows up and immediately has this kind of duke it out session with the Antichrist and the false prophet, right? And those dudes are manhandled in a real hurry. Uh, the sense I think we get when you, when you look at, okay, what's going to transpire when he returns? In Matthew 24, it talks about the sheep and the goat's judgment. There will actually be an actual judgment on the planet, I believe. I believe that's what he's talking about in Matthew 24, where people are literally going to be called to account. The people who are alive at his coming who are unbelievers, they, they will have a visit with the king. And, and, in, and then they will be uh, sent to depart into... In, um, into the, uh, the judgment of hell. So I think that's, um, I, I really believe that's, that's where they will be. Is that, is that what you're going for? Okay, what were you going for then? Uh, I'll, I'll have to talk to you later. Okay. Yeah, no, no problem, no problem. Sorry I, sorry I failed you. Okay, uh, whoa, these, are, these, are, these are big ones here. Holy smokes. All right, uh, I'll pick and choose. If unbelievers are able to display, in a sense, love, compassion, gentleness, patience, etc., due to being created in God's image, how can we differentiate between the fruits of the Spirit and the common grace of God, both in the assurance of our own salvation and that of our church body? Yeah, that's a good. That's a that's a really good question. You get the nature of his question, right? I mean, uh, unbelievers are capable of a, of a lot of things. Is there any difference between that and the fruit of the Spirit? 
uh, and the common grace of God? I, th- I think there is. Now, is that always immediately distinguishable in every case? It's not. Because the whole parable of the wheat and the tares is exactly the point. There's going to be a lot of people, they kind of look like the real deal, but then they're not. Right? So, so there's, there's a sense where sometimes that does look similar, and yet I believe that the New Testament does spell out a, a qualitative difference between what people are capable of, with, capable of doing naturally and, and the fruit of the Spirit, because one is natural and one is supernatural, right? Now, obviously, to, to truly do justice to the question, we'd have to give a ton of examples, and I don't think we've got that here. I, so I do think um, that one of the ways to tell them, I mean, there's, there's probably not one great, there's probably multiple ways to answer this question. I think one of the ways to tell between the common grace of God and people in God's image doing nice things and the fruit of the Spirit, I think would have to be um, what, uh, what is the, the root of where that fruit comes from? You know, do, is, there, is there clear affection for Christ? D- does their life manifest an increasing hunger for the Word of God? You know, do their lives demonstrate long, consistent struggle in sanctification? And, and, and so I think, I think you'd have to kind of look at, at a person's life as a whole to, to be able to go, okay, all right, that's the fruit of the Spirit. Because the, the, the Bible does give us really clear indicators of that's how you know. That's how you know. And so I think there is a qualitative difference between those two things. You still don't have enough time to un- unfold all that. Sorry. Kind of blew that one too. Um yeah, you got my number. Don't abuse that. Um, <laughs> Miss, Miss Meme Girl. She sends me memes. It's actually really fun. Actually, I had one. I did this in Spokane. I did a Q&A in Spokane. And someone sent, oh, like, a, like people are sending like goofy pictures. And one of the questions was, uh, how do you get suits that fit so well? I'm like, what? Really? Is that what this time is for? Come on. Um, all right, uh, good. Uh, uh, in light of the fact that we are all fallen under the wrath of God due to original sin, do you see anything in Scripture that indicates that we would, that would be the eternal destiny, uh, come on, English, Jared, uh, be the eternal destiny of those who have not had an opportunity to come to faith in Christ? I'm referring not so much to those who have willfully sinned and denied the reality of God as displayed through his creation, but rather, for example, those who die before their mental faculties are fully developed. Oh, okay, good. Um, Hopefully that, that makes sense. That, that's a good question. Um, yeah, so, you know, let, I don't know if this is exactly what you're going for, uh, but babies, we'll, let's talk about little children. Um, you know, the, the thing about this issue with, with babies and, and, and little children is there's not one really awesome slam dunk verse that like, oh, okay, well, that's the text. I think there's that text in, in 2 Samuel, uh, it's 11 or 12, where there's that, that child born, and it says that Yahweh struck the child, and the child became ill, and, and the child died, and David says, I cannot go, uh, he cannot come to me, but I will go to him. He doesn't say everything that could be said in that moment. It's a little ambiguous. But I think he says enough to give us an indication. David understood that there was life beyond the grave, and David knew where he was headed eternally. And so I think that gives us, I think that's the, one of the best indicators of, okay, I think it's clear that, that in the mercy of God, uh, children are, are spared. Doesn't mean, that, doesn't mean even children, that doesn't mean children deserve that. It doesn't mean children deserve to be spared. 
it, it, but it does reveal that God is merciful and, and does spare children. At what age does he do that? You know, people talk about an age of accountability. That's just, that's just not in the Bible. You know, a specific age. But I think in addition to that one verse in 2 Samuel, I think what you do is you have to look at, sort of you have to harmonize a bunch of verses and you kind of put them together. And when you look at all the verses harmonized together, I think you walk away with going, you know what? When babies die, they go to be with the Lord. I think I think that's a I think that's a clear uh, uh, um, inference that you could and should draw when you look at the the Bible as a whole. So I don't know if that's if that's what you're referring to, but I would I would say that would be the case. Uh, okay, uh, is it possible that Calvinists and Arminians really believe the same things, but just talk about them in different ways? No, no, I don't I don't think that. Uh, you know, because it, because it really comes down to defining your terms. And, and you know, again, I, I'm, I'm not on the, you know, I am totally defined as a Calvinist. That's the thing that really defines me in life. Um, I'm not one of those guys. But, but as a Calvinist, and as I've had lots of conversations with Arminians, we're not talking about the same thing. We're just not. We're defining things radically different. We have a different starting point. Um, and, and, and I think that there is, there is a, a fundamental flaw in, in the hermeneutic of Arminians. I think that there, there's, a, there's a foundational flaw in the way they... I, th- I think that Arminianism, to be an Arminian, I think you have to take a, you have to take a synthetic sort of uh, lens of interpretation and force it on the Bible, and I think that's how, you, that's how you become an Arminian. I don't think you get to an Arminian because of the text. I think it's something that you have to force upon the text. Now, that's offensive. I'm, uh, maybe some of you are, are, you know, would classify self you're as, as Arminians. Now, here's the thing. That being said, there, there are, you know, as long as uh, an, an Arminian loves the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture... If they uphold the, the Trinity, if they uphold the deity of Christ, if they uphold uh, that the death of Christ is the only way for anyone to be saved, if they uphold the exclusivity of Christ, if they uphold that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, if they uphold that we are born wicked in need of a Savior, if they uphold that the gospel proclaimed is the only way for people to get saved, if they uphold that there will be a literal return of, of Jesus Christ and that, that he, I'll back up, that he, he died a sin-bearing death for sinners and that he rose from the dead and he will return uh, um, in, regardless of what you believe about the end times that he will physically return. If you believe all those things, we are friends. We are friends and I could be friends with Arminians and I have lots of Arminian friends and I've had lots of conversations about these things. So at the end of the day, um, I, think, I think the issues we talk about matter. They're not arbitrary or silly. They're not petty things. Um, I, 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 I lament the Arminian position. I lament it. It saddens me. I, I, think, it, I think it obscures uh, the full glory of God. Um, and, and yet that being said, uh, at the end of the day, we both put our head on the chopping block of the ins- inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture, right? We are in this thing together. So I see if an Arminian can affirm those things that I just described, they're my comrade, and, and I love them. Hopefully that, that helps. I'm giving it away who asked the question by staring right at them. I'm, I'm sorry for that. Uh, I got another meme. I'll... <laughs> yes. All right. This is my opinion, okay? Oh, no, that's not a question. That's a, <laughs> that's a previous text from that person. Okay. All right. So I'm glad I didn't read the whole thing. Um, 
Okay, well, that's, that's it. You know, much more could be said. Sorry I went nine minutes over. But um, anyway, thank you guys. I, I love doing theology with you. love having these conversations. I, I hope these are helpful. Uh, uh, we will uh, meet again in a couple weeks from now. We, we will see. I, I'm leaving for California next week, and then, which means I'll be getting back the Saturday before I would have done this again. So we'll see if I'm... Um, anyway, I'll keep you posted on when the next one is, but it'll be soon, okay? Anyway, thank you so much. Appreciate you guys. Thank you. Yeah, you bet. Thank you.